Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm Monish Rath, and I will be joined shortly by my colleague, David Saravati. Uh, real quickly, for those of you who are attending the OSHA 3030 for the first time, we have uh, been doing this program for over two years, I guess, and we've been doing it every 30 days. It's a webinar that brings you updates in OSHA law in about 30 minutes, uh, about every 30 days. And so we're on a, probably our 30th or, 30th or 31st episode of the OSHA 3030. Uh, prior episodes, if you will, uh, are located on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. That's easy to Google up, or you can just Google up Monish Wrath. OSHA 3030, uh, and you can find a lot of the topics we've done over the past couple of years. Some of them are still very helpful to you and your space, and we target this program to folk who are in-house counsel at corporations and are responsible for safety and health compliance or safety and health professionals, human resources professionals, who are also responsible for uh, knowing about occupational safety and health law. Today's topic is a pretty important one, one of the important developments from the year 2015, uh, where OSHA implemented a new standard in the construction segment of the OSHA regulations on confined spaces. So the confined spaces standard in construction is a long-awaited standard. Uh, really, it's safe to say that it's been on the books as a proposed rule for uh, 25 years now. Uh, there was first an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking for confined spaces in construction uh, around 1980, and some comments came in. OSHA, there was not much activity from OSHA for a long period of time. In 1993, OSHA issued uh, confined spaces standard in the general industry segment, and for quite some time after that, that was the standard that was applied even in construction settings. Uh, now OSHA has revived its uh, initiative and finalized its rule in 2015, some, uh, I should say, 35 years after uh, the first advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. And, uh, and over the course of the following few months, as recently as a few couple months ago or three months ago, they issued a uh, temporary enforcement policy. And so that's where we're at now. And so what we're going to talk about today is uh, get, giving you an overview of what the new construction confined spaces standard says, what are the key differences between the confined spaces standard in construction and the standard, its analog uh, standard in general industry, some of the multi-employer worksite, uh, multi worksite problems. Uh, we'll keep you up to date. We'll bring you up to date on OSHA's temporary enforcement policy, which it issued a couple months ago. And, and as we try always to do, wrap up with some practical advice or practical analysis on what employers should do in light of these developments. So with that said, let's go ahead and get into it and, uh, and uh, start talking about an overview of the confined space of standard in the construction industry. And, and as we go, we'll be joined by my colleague, David Sarvati. David? Hi, Manish. How are you? Great. Today. How are you? Good. Um, this is an important topic. It's one that's got a lot of people uh, who are faced with uh, changes in their practices. So uh, let's go. 
Yeah, I think that's right. All right. So, so the first thing we ought to talk about uh, is the uh, standard. First, as I said, it was many years in the rulemaking. It was finalized and published in May of 2015, and the effective date for compliance with the standard was August of 2015. Uh, what it does essentially is that's specific to construction is it deals with some of the aspects of construction that are unique to, as opposed to general industry. Hazards are in constant fluctuation. The work site is constantly changing. There are many, many employers, often, you know, dozens of employers at a work site in the construction setting. Uh, and the, the shifts keep changing, but the work keeps going on. Uh, atmospheric conditions inside of confined spaces can change. Uh, construction as, construction confined spaces, as with many general industry confined spaces, have atmospheric and engulfment risks, and that creates challenges to make sure there's ventilation. So with that said, uh, let's get into more specifics. In a the, the first thing that the standard calls for is to identify confined spaces, and the standard defines confined spaces, and it defines them as spaces that are large enough for a person to enter, but have limited entry or exit, and by limited, we mean you may have to exit by way of a ladder, there may be obstructions to the exit like pipes or other obstacles or it may just be a long, long distance between where a worker is working and the exit from a confined space. Uh, and the other quality that makes a space a confined space is that it is not designated or designed or intended for continuous occupancy. You might see an absence of things like lighting fixtures, uh, for example. Uh, David, I think that a confined space is, is a, a, a definition that, you know, they try and make it as clear as they can, but it really is uh, something that uh, a competent person has to go make determinations on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, Manish, and most people will remember that under the standard, the general industry standard, the employers were supposed to inventory the confined spaces and label them uh, based on the criteria. I, I would add that this notion of limited entry or exit also includes spaces where the access is not basically a full-size walk-through door. So if you have, uh, for example, manholes or uh, hatches of some kind that have to be opened to get in, that's probably going to make your space a confined space as well. And uh, the uh, the other thing to think about when we're talking about confined spaces in, in the general industry standards, we have confined spaces and then permit spaces as noted here. And uh, if it's a, a permit space, then all of the other provisions of the standard have to be brought to bear. Um, Monish, the other thing I, I point I'd make is that uh, a requirement for a confined space program or, or confined space uh, safety uh, practices is not new. There was a standard in uh, requirement in the uh, construction industry standards to have a confined space program if one was needed, and it's, it was uh, because it was that uh, loose in terms of identifying when uh, the standard applies and what should be done to comply. Uh, OSHA went through the exercise of developing a specific standard for the construction industry. Um, and I guess the, the last point I'd make in the construction uh, business, confined spaces come and go. Uh, things that may be a confined space when they're being built may turn out not to be a confined space later and vice versa. So it's uh, definitely a very uh, a changing uh, workplace that needs to be monitored for these kinds of things uh, throughout the construction phase. Yeah, you make some great points, David, and it reminds me of another uh, point that I wanted to make, and that's that when you look at a workplace, 
it is not a concrete, clear definition as to when a general sta uh, industry standard would apply and when a construction uh, standard would apply. Uh, generally speaking, the definition for construction is very broad. It's anytime any work is being done, clearly to construct or demolish, but also any modifications that are made. And so it is conceivable that you could have a work site where two workers are working side by side and one is operating under uh, a general industry standard and another might be doing different tasks at a different part of the work site and be uh, regulated by the, the, constru the analogous construction standard. And that might be the case here as well because, as you say, these, right. these spaces um, are constantly Right. It's a really good point and one I want to emphasize. You can be a general industry standard uh, employer basically covered by the general industry standards, but if your employees are doing construction work, then your uh, activities in that regard are governed by the, the construction industry standards. And uh, about the only thing that's not covered when you're doing any kind of repairs or changes to a facility is painting and decorating. Um, those kinds of things uh, generally are not included in the construction uh, definition, but just about everything else is. And so it brings general industry employers under the rubric of the rule, particularly as a host employer, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. And so the last thing I want to say uh, before we move on is, is so clearly we need a competent person under the construction standard to identify these confined spaces as David Servati described. And then after the confined spaces have been inventoried, a determination has to be made by a competent person as to which of them are permit spaces. And they, they would be classified as confined spaces that have hazards associated with them such as hazardous atmospheres, the potential for engulfment, or where a worker could be trapped or asphyxiated uh, or caught in uh, inwardly converging walls or a floor that slopes downward or tapers to a uh, shrinking uh, cross-section. So, so those are the kinds of things that convert a confined space to not just a confined space, but a permit-required confined space, or sometimes simply referred to as permit space. So and Monashi, people need yeah. to keep in mind, too, that last category, the catch-all there, contains any other recognized hazard. That includes things like lockout and electrical hazards and moving hazards from moving equipment. Uh, that's a great point. That's exactly right. Thank you, David. And so with that in mind, let's talk about some of the key differences between the general industry standard and this new construction standard. For one thing, uh, the employer was generically uh, on the hook for compliance with the general industry standard, and now there are three types of employers, each with uh, overlapping responsibilities, I'll say. There is a entry employer, a controlling employer, and a host employer. I should start from the bottom up. The host employer or the host contractor owns or manages the property and has the duty under this new standard to share information with controlling employers. The thinking there, I believe, is that uh, property owners uh, don't really uh, are, were able to protest to OSHA that they don't have the expertise to identify these kinds of hazards, and that's why they hire experts in the form of controlling employers. Uh, so OSHA, uh, I think, has addressed that by saying that the host employer has to share information that it does have with the controlling employer, and the controlling employer, as it goes about identifying through a competent person its confined spaces and its permit spaces must share information back to the host employer, and the host employer is thereby uh, in, better informed to inform subsequent contractors who come on site. 
so the controlling employer has the overall responsibility for coordinating an entry and, for, and disseminating information to subcontractors, uh, independent contractors, et cetera. Uh, and then there's the entry employer, which may be the same, but it may be a distinct employer. And that is the employer whose worker will enter the confined space. That does not necessarily mean that the entry employer must supply the qualified person who is the entry supervisor. That may come from the controlling employer, uh, but it may come from the entry, uh, entry employer. Uh, but the, the point is that the entry employer has certain liabilities under the standard by virtue of the fact that it's its employee that uh, the employer is deciding will enter the space. With that said, uh, I think one of the other things that I wanted to talk about as key differences between the construction standard and the general industry standard is that there is now this concept of continuous early warning, uh, both with regard to upstream detection of engulfment hazards and with regards to constant monitoring or continuous monitoring for atmospheric changes. Uh, let me be clear, uh, in the general industry standard, there was always a duty to monitor for the atmosphere, and uh, I think it's very difficult, or for, for engulfment hazards, and I think that would be very difficult to do if not doing it on a regular basis, if not continuous. Yeah. But now that well, you're actually, I think that, yeah, yeah that's... That's definitely one of the subjects that came up in the original confined spaces standard, but what has happened since then is the technology's changed. The kinds of devices that are available to monitor for atmospheric contaminants has, has improved dramatically. We don't have the issues we used to have with things like uh, uh, calibration and making sure that sensors and, and equipment operated properly. Uh, much more sophisticated now, and of course, uh, all technically advanced. And so I think OSHA perhaps rightfully concluded that uh, technology has advanced to the point where a continuous monitor for act, act atmospheric changes uh, is fee not only feasible but um, highly desirable, and so they included that. And I would not be surprised to see that requirement migrating over to the general industry standard over time. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, in the meantime, however, it's, it's unique to the construction standard, and that's an important point because we have a community member who's asked a question I'll address at the end of the slide. Uh, one of the other differences is it has now carefully defined who is a competent, per what a competent person means and what a qualified person means when it uses those expressions in the standard. A competent person uh, is defined as somebody who is capable of identifying existing and predictable hazards. And a competent person must be authorized by the employer to abate a hazard. Now, a competent person is a term that's used in the standard as somebody who identifies confined spaces and makes determinations as to whether they are permit-required confined spaces. A qualified person is also defined in this new standard, and that's somebody who possesses a recognized degree or certificate or has professional standing, or by means of acquiring extensive knowledge, training, or experience, has successfully demonstrated that they can, can resolve problems associated with permit spaces. For example, they have all one of those types of backgrounds, a degree or extensive knowledge and training to know how to uh, attach a, a worker to uh, a hoisting system or how to, what type of personal protective equipment to use or where to locate monitoring equipment, et cetera. So that person would be have to be a qualified person. But also, I want to point out – go ahead. 
I was going to say, it's, uh, the interesting point here is the second bullet, bullet, or the first bullet under the qualified person, that they've successfully demonstrated their ability to solve or resolve problems. You know, I, in, in doing training for individuals over the years, one of the things we learned, especially the things like respirators, is that it's much more effective if you get the person to demonstrate their ability to do something with a hands-on exercise. And I would expect to see uh, OSHA raising questions about the qualified person's ability if there is not some indication either through a test or other device in the training program that demonstrates their ability to, for example, identify uh, confined spaces, identify situations that could change the circumstances within the space, uh, problems with hosting equipment and that sort of thing. That is, to, to be able to identify the gamut of problems that might arise in a confined space entry and to, to demonstrate an ability not only to recognize them but to come to uh, some way to resolve the issues um, so that people are protected throughout the, the uh, sequence. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Now, now when we talk about the qualified person, not only do they have to have had that background, but I think that the applicability is important to understand as well. The qualified person is is also the the person who's the entry supervisor. Uh, let me state that backwards to make make more sense. The person who the employer assigns as the entry supervisor has to be a qualified person. The person who identifies confined spaces and makes determinations about uh, whether they're permit spaces has to be a competent person under this definition. And so those are key new features to this new standard, which weren't as clearly defined uh, in the general industry standard. Uh, two or three other changes that I want to talk about as we move from the general industry standard of 1993 to the 2015 construction standard, they're saying that hoisting systems used for extracting personnel must be personnel designed specifically for personnel hoisting uh, and not something that was meant for uh, the hoisting of goods uh, and adapted for pulling a person out. Uh, again, I think, as David Sarvati had mentioned, that's a reflection of advances in the uh, universe of products available to employers. Uh, it used to be that if there were a change in the hazardous conditions in a confined space, you'd have to cease work, cancel the permit, correct the hazard, and then you could issue and develop an, and issue a new permit before setting a person in. And now, if it is a change in conditions that can be quickly remediated, then the employer may suspend the permit and then, under the same permit, uh, unsuspend the permit and, and resume work. Uh, and so that, I think, is designed to allow for a more fluid suspension and resumption of work under a singular permit. Uh, and I think one other interesting feature about the permits is that the permit may be a uniform permit that has been uh, used for two different employers on that same space. It, each employer does not have to develop their own permit. Uh, and the, I think another new feature is that the, the employer is now required to record the method or the means by which it is monitoring continuously the atmospheric hazards inside a confined space while there's an entry underway. Uh, so one of the questions we had uh, coming up on the sideboard, and if, if any of you have questions on the side of your screen, there's a space for uh, typing them in. But one member of the OSHA 3030 community has asked, well, look, if I have applied the general industry standard to my workplace, 
and in fact it's a construction activity, will that be suitable or sufficient? Will that stand a sufficient um, argument for that we, the fact that we complied uh, in general or in spirit? And I think the answer is no. If, if, if what you're doing is designated as construction work and all you've done is complied with the general industry standard, and that means that you haven't defined the three different levels of employer and created communication systems between entry employers and host employers, et cetera, and you don't have hoisting systems for per designed for personnel, and probably most importantly the continuous monitoring or continuous early warning for engulfment, engulfment hazards or atmospheric changes, then I would suggest to you that that stands as non-compliance under the construction standard, and it will not uh, be a suitable defense to say, even though we were a construction activity, we were applying the general industry standard, and that should be good enough. I hope that answers uh, the question. I, I would comment that that's uh, – yeah, there's, there's a couple of problems uh, that arise when you're trying to point to the general industry standard for compliance with the, the construction requirements. The first is that um, if I were a, a zealous prosecutor, I might take the, the notion that you recognize that there are two standards and that uh, the, the second one applied as uh, essentially a plain indifference to, requ to the requirements of that standard and therefore rise to the level of a wolf violation. On the other hand, in defense, I might argue that uh, unless there was something unique about this particular construction uh, confined space, that the confined space uh, spaces general industry standard provided uh, adequate protection and that any differences might be considered a de minimis violation. So the problem, of course, with not following the one that applies is that you leave yourself open for citation to the provisions of the other standard that, that would apply. And in this case, as we've seen in the uh, this slide, and we'll see in the next one, there are significant differences that employers need to be aware of and follow in the, uh, the construction industry uh, area. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's safe to say that where it comes to issues like continuous early warning uh, or continuous monitoring, if you are in fact in the – let me reverse the question and say that you are in fact properly doing activity that belongs in general industry, but you are applying the more stringent elements of the construction standard – like continuous monitoring or early warning of engulfment hazards, that that would not be non-compliance. That would be, uh, I'd say, super compliance. And OSHA has uh, specifically communicated that it believes that compliance with the construction standard in general industry uh, circumstances would be suitable because it is, by and large, the more stringent standard. Uh, but that does not work in the reverse, where the less stringent standard, general industry, would stand for, as compliance for con the construction setting. Uh, with that said, uh, there was another question from a member of the OSHA 3030 community, uh, which was, uh, would a non-entry rescue be an adequate rescue approach? Uh, one of the things that OSHA has communicated is that non-entry rescues are the preferred approach wherever possible, uh, and that there are a number of steps that have to be taken before committing to an entry-based rescue. Uh, and before we move on, I'll just ask David, were there any other thoughts on that question? No, I don't think so, Monish. I think the, the point to be made is that uh, non-entry rescues are always preferred because you don't put other people at risk. And, Monish, as you well know, we had a case a number of years ago where a rescue was attempted that led to other another fatality in the same instance. And uh, that is all too often the result of 
trying to perform a rescue without following the proper procedures. Yeah, it's an impulsive, understandable impulse. Uh, and, and for those of you who are dealing with rescues, I would caution you, take the time to look through the construction standard because that is one of the other features that is new. It goes through a prescription for making sure before there's an entry that you've communicated with your local emergency provider uh, or that you have emergency rescue uh, services trained on site. But if not, that you let your local emergency rescue services know that there's an entry and that they should contact you if they're down in service, uh, if their service goes down for any reason uh, temporarily, and that they should call you before they, they go, go out of service so that you can suspend your own entry. Uh, so there's, there's some prescriptions in the new standard that you'd need to know about on the specific subject of rescues, uh, and so I'm glad this question was raised by one of our community. Uh, let's move on. The, in October, so, so this became effective in August, and in October, OSHA, responding to a number of people who have communicated the significant problems with compliance uh, by October, uh, said, listen, we will uh, create a temporary enforcement policy, and they published that in October, and it said we will decline many, the many requests to extend the effective date from August. However, for 60 days, we will postpone enforcement against any specific employer if that employer can show good faith. Some of the things that we'll look at to, to consider whether good, good faith has been exhibited would be examples of uh, whether the employer has taken sufficient steps to train their work staff or acquire and implement training programs, whether the employer has uh, ordered equipment like PPE or monitoring equipment, may not have received it yet, but it is on order and they're waiting to get it and to put it online, uh, and whether there are any other additional efforts to educate workers about hazards associated with confined spaces generally. So if an employer can show those three steps, even though they haven't uh, implemented perfect compliance yet, that they can show good faith uh, and appeal to OSHA to suspend for 60 days uh, enforcement. That 60 days has come and gone by now, uh, but I think it's an important point if indeed you still are waiting for, say, for example, monitoring equipment that you had ordered before August. With that said, let's talk about some of the practical steps in the last few minutes we have, practical steps that employers can take. Uh, one of the things that I think it clearly comes across as a very strong emphasis, and I think it's become a trend in the most recent rulemakings by OSHA in the past couple of years, is the, the emphasis they place on training. And when, David, you and I have handled enforcement cases, contests uh, against citations separately and together all around the country, and I think that one of the things we see that they look at very keenly is they look for training records, and even if they feel weaker, if OSHA feels weaker in prosecuting an underlying safety condition, they like to nevertheless write a citation if they think they can for inadequate training. Yeah, I think the problem, Monish, is that they're trying to raise the bar on what is required for training. If you remember last time we talked, we had the uh, HASCOM standard. We were talking about the, the uh, OSHA's position that there's a right to be uh, to for the employee to understand HASCOM training. I would think that they would be looking for a similar level of uh, understanding on the part of the employees when they uh, determine whether or not the training is adequate. And where in the past we might have been, uh, it might have been sufficient for us to have evidence uh, of a person attending a training class, for example, attendance sheets or that sort of thing. Um, the more cursory uh, 
tests that have been given, the sort of multiple choice, fill-in-the-blank type of tests that have been given in the past, I think are going to be more difficult to defend as sufficient to demonstrate competency. And, of course, that question of competency uh, depends on what the responsibilities of the employee are uh, and in the tasks that they have to accomplish. But it seems to me that uh, what we've seen in the last several standards is uh, a raising of the bar when it comes to the level of training that OSHA is going to expect to see in a compliance situation. Yeah, well, I, should... I, think, I think that's right. Uh, the other things that I think that, we, David, you and I would probably agree on about what employers should do is, you know, the, the evaluation of compliance spaces and determination of whether they're permanent spaces is something that a lot of employers do very, very well, but they don't record that process very well. Uh, and I think that that, right. that recording is a great defense for the efforts they took and why they, they would believe in the decisions they've made. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that that's exactly right, Manish. And I think, you know, that all of this has to start with a thorough understanding of the standard. So in addition to reading the standard itself, it's very important to read the preamble to the standard where OSHA gives its rationale for making the decisions that it did uh, so you understand not only what they're expecting you to do but why so that you can address those kinds of issues if your circumstances are different than the usual case. Yeah. So the other one, Monash, this, this yeah. list of things to be done I think is very good and, and provided it starts with a thorough understanding of what the standard says. Yeah, I think that's that's critical. I agree. The only other one I'll mention before we go uh, is the second point uh, on this slide, the coordination with other employers. You know, I think that the best way to do that, if you are a multi-employer worksite where people are coming on and off all day long from different employers, is to try and find a routine way of doing that, a forms-driven way of communicating information between employers uh, so that you can keep records that, that prove or establish that, in fact, the information has been communicated from one employer to another. Uh, but to do that on an ad hoc basis, verbally sometimes, in emails all the times, is a um, terrible way to manage a, a record of compliance with that coordination requirement. And so I would, I would encourage a form-based routine or systemic, systematized way of making those communications happen. Yeah. With that Monish, said, that's it. It's yeah. really, uh, I want to just emphasize that more thoroughly. It's really important to make sure that that coordination gets done in an active, affirmative way because there are cases in, in the books where the transition between shifts and or uh, handing off between employers is was the is one of the specific causes of the accident or incident that occurred and uh, i think that the the problem for both employers is that if you don't handle that correctly you're both going to be potentially liable for citation that's right that's right uh well, with that said, I'm Manish Rath, and I'm grateful to you, David Savati, for joining me. I think many of you on this call know David Savati and have for many years, uh, and I'm grateful once again for you joining me on the aftermath. Uh, for those Thanks, of you Manish. who absolutely, thank you. Uh, for those of you who've been participating for a long time, uh, we are grateful. For those of you who want to catch up on the prior uh, OSHA 3030, you can do so at our website, OSHA uh, khlaw.com/slash. OSHA 3030, but we also have it now on podcast, so you can just take it with you. You don't have to be tied down to a desk or a Wi-Fi hotspot, and if you want to download some of the prior OSHA 3030s, you can do so as a podcast on any podcast streaming service, I'm told, such as iTunes or Podcast Addict. Uh, and the other uh, great innovation that's happened since we last met 
is we now have on our LinkedIn page a separate page for the Workplace Safety and Health group. That's our group. Uh, so we uh, encourage you to visit and link in or follow the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health group on LinkedIn, and we'd love to have you as followers. We'd love to follow what you're doing as well. Thank you all for joining us. The next OSHA 3030 will be uh, scheduled for 1 p.m. on Wednesday, February 17th. We're grateful for your participation. When you get the invitation for the next one, we hope that you forward it on to others within your organization and your counterparts at other organizations who are in-house counsel, safety and health professionals, human resources professionals responsible for uh, safety and health issues. Thank you all.